really talked uh, tonight about the, the fact that the Uni Fellowship is, uh, we're a missionary society of a kind, really. We have a mission to the university and we're inviting you to work with us to share in that evangelistic mission. But we have a long-term vision as well to be in all of our different gifts and personalities <coughs> and circumstances, continue to share in Jesus' work and the rest of our lives. But it's more than that, really, because amongst university students, you also have many potential leaders who are gifted and privileged and able in many ways. And amongst that lot, we do want to also be, uh, every year to every cohort of Christian uni students, challenging some to be the missionary leaders amongst God's people uh, into the future. So we're a, we're a missionary society, just as you have missionary sending societies like CMS and whatever your denominations or churches might be that you partner with. Um, so also you have local missionary societies like Uni Fellowship or like Scripture Union and things like this that work locally. We are, as one former uh, director of the AFES group we're part of, spoke about it as an evangelistic task force. That's quite a cool way of describing it, isn't it? An evangelistic task force. Um, or you could say, as, as some people describe these sorts of groups, the, the Protestant version of a monastic order, <laughs> where instead of going into a monastery, um, into some kind of set of vows about poverty and chastity and so on, uh, we still are committed to be serving God's people in an intensive way beyond just the regular fellowship of the local church. Some might do that with cool monk haircuts and robes. And you can do that stuff if you want. But that's, that's up to you. Freedom in Christ. But you know, some might do that in those kind of uh, Catholic traditions and Orthodox traditions. Um, but as we seek to intensively serve the purposes of God beyond just the fellowship of the local church, we're kind of a Protestant version of that. That's kind of one cool way of thinking about it. You could think of it as an, uh, an outreach enterprise just as Christians might have social enterprises of various kinds to provide charity or advocacy or um, a restoration for people coming out of prison or drug abuse and whatever else. Uh, so also we're a inter Christian enterprise interested in outreach. A mission team, a gospel missionary team, a local missionary team. And that we're a great, great commission group. Yes, we're a community and it's really lovely to come up here and, and see the whatever it was that you guys were doing up here, the card game um, thing, um, you know, like that stuff's really important too because we're people <coughs> that God has made and we love to be with other people and connect and, 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 and eating and laughing and, and singing and all these things are part of that. Um, and we, do, we are interested in your spiritual maturity. We, as Alan has already said, we want you to grow up as individuals, grow up in your faith, grow up in your godliness, grow up in your Christian life. We want to benefit you. There's a payoff you get out of uni fellowship in that way. But in addition to the community, and in addition to the personal benefit, we also are every year with each cohort of uni students, um, equipping and empowering and hopefully inspiring um, and mobilising you to become people who share in the mission to the university and are on a trajectory in some way or another, and especially for some of you full-time missionaries to the world, that we're wanting to say, come and join this fellowship that's great to be a part of, but I mean, fellowship's a weird word, isn't it? Like in church, fellowship, I guess, kind of means shortbread biscuits and wheat cordial and, and kind of coffee, you know, not very good coffee in tiny mugs. You know how church, there's a, there's a size of mug which is church size. It's just it's tinier than a normal size mug. Well, maybe not. It doesn't seem in the, um, in the, the Southern Presbyterian Church. You guys have a serious mug? Yeah, I was we agreeing have some with you. Ones, but we keep those in the Oh, you, have, you do have big mugs, yeah, as the scriptures say, yeah. <laughs> no, but you need the small mug because surely my cup overfloweth, you see. <laughs> but fellowship can kind of just mean hanging out, just Christian hanging out, you know. Um, uh, 
But actually, fellowship, you know, the, the Tolkien stories in the film, the fellowship of the ring, they didn't just hang out, did they? It wasn't just, let's all get together with my axe and my bow and my sword and just hang out um, in, the, in the Tolkien story. But it's a fellowship on a mission, isn't it? They, they're charged with a purpose and they're equipped and mobilised together. And they do. There's laughter and there's meals and there's, um, there's friendships formed in all sorts of ways, but they're also on a, on a, they've got a purpose to them. And so in the same way, we're on a mission together. Um, but it's not just a mission that's my idea or Josh's idea or some founding member's quirky niche purpose. The lovely thing about the UD Fellowship is, as we read this, this central part of the scriptures... Um, it's completely in line with that. We're a special task force sharing in the central purpose that Jesus gives to his people at his resurrection. Yeah? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's the purpose that we're sharing in. The purpose for all God's people, for the church. Um, it is the, the priority for this final phase of God's cosmic purposes before Jesus' return. The climax of Matthew's gospel, the climax of salvation history as we come into what the Bible calls the last days, is the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the building of the church until Christ's return. This little section right at the very end begins in um, Galilee there, you see, in verse 16. Just as Jesus had told the women who were the first to witness his resurrection, they were, um, they were told um, to meet him in Galilee. Why, why Galilee? Well, at least in part, it's where the, the mission began, uh, where Jesus' min- public ministry began back in Matthew 4. You may as well have your Bibles or your phones out and work a bit with me in the Bible. Get, as you flick or scroll, it gets you, it's an extra little kind of teaching tool to get you really engaging rather than just being entertained by me, um, is, is to be thinking this stuff with me. Join me on this Bible study, if you like. Um, and notice that as Jesus begins to preach after his baptism and temp- successful triumph of temptation, Jesus goes into Galilee, Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Galilee is important, as Isaiah said, it would be important. So Jesus began his ministry there on earth, his public ministry, and then begins the, the disciples' ministry in, and his resurrection by meeting them there and, again, sending them out for this mission. I think the point of Galilee in Isaiah, as it says here, is it's a place of darkness. It's called the place of the Gentiles. It wasn't originally, though. Notice how it's called the place of darkness and the Gentiles. But it's also called the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. What are they? What's Zebulun and Naphtali? Or Naphtali? What's that? Anyone know? Anyone know where those names come from? Have a guess. Two tribes of Israel. Yeah, yeah, two of the tribes of Israel. So there's, can you do all 12 or 13 or whatever it is? No. No. Could anyone do that? Anyone do that? You know, have those, have those Sunday school songs you remember? Does anyone have that one? Don't know. Mm. Okay, we'll, we'll have a prize for you if you can memorise more. Um, uh, so it it's, was a place where tribes of Israel were, but it had become a place of darkness, a place of Gentiles, because that's where the exile began. As the judgment of God came upon Israel, as the, 
uh, the soldiers of the east came in from the north down through those tribes and took them away first. And so it became a cursed, um, judged, dis- uh, you know, displaced area. It was where the darkness first began, where judgment first began. Now Jesus is going back to that place. As Isaiah said, the light would then dawn and salvation would come back to where judgment had first come. Isn't that exciting? It's like the return, um, you know, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. The return from exile dawns here. The return is beginning. Yeah, I think that's what's, that's what's going on there in Galilee. So back to Matthew 28. They're in Galilee. <coughs> Um, And then you get this cute little note, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, rightly so, risen from the dead, oh my goodness. And some doubted. It's it's weird because we we go, well, surely you would just believe once you saw it because it's proof and it's evidence and everybody knows that humans believe everything as soon as they have proof and evidence. Well, no, it's more realistic than that, actually, that we actually do struggle to come to full belief. And even as you're confronted with the remarkable things, you can still doubt and struggle and scratch your head. It's an interesting little moment of going, as all the way along, the disciples were of little faith and doubted and took two steps forward and then one step back. You know, like in Matthew 16, which we'll return to, um, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. My father has revealed that to you. And Peter goes, yes. And then Jesus said, now I'll tell you as the Christ, I'm going to be handed over and crucified. And Peter says, no, never do that. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, no, wrong. Get behind me, Satan. That's the things of man, not the things of God. Again, that example of kind of getting it a little, but then kind of not getting it at all, seems to happen quite a lot, doesn't it? Um, uh, they, They go up and see Jesus revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter says, okay, cool, so this is it. Let's build some tents. We're on. This is, you know, he's not understanding it. They come down the mountain, the disciples who are following Jesus and sharing in his work have forgotten to pray as they participate in the work of exorcism. There's this mix all the way through of the disciples being real people. Not perfect cardboard cutout saints, but real people, sinners, whose doubt is still mixed with their believing. So at the very end, still it's dawning on them. Yeah? And yet as he meets in this place where the dawn of God's salvation will come, the return from exile, the bringing of God's salvation, and he speaks to these still dawning in their own minds and hearts, disciples still joining the dots on what's happening, yeah. Um, then Jesus gives this great commission. Two little quick observations before we dive into the Great Commission. First little observation. Uh, number one, uh, it's an interesting little thing to note. Um, if you've got the time, go back and check out the way 2 Chronicles ends. It's the, the last book in, in many of the Jewish versions of the Old Testament. It's the very last book of many Jewish collections of the Old Testament. And the way it ends, the wording is very similar to the way that the Great Commission is here. And so that's just an interesting little echo the return from exile, again, in 2 Chronicles 36, sounds a lot like this now final salvation, much greater than just a return from exile. So that's the first little interesting note. A second little note is there's actually two great commissions, kind of, in this chapter. Did you pick up that as the whole chapter was read? That there's the event, the resurrection, Jesus risen, the, the women witnessing and being told to go and tell this amazing event. And then we get two newses that get spread as a result. 
First, there's the lie, the guards' report and the plot to cover up. So there in verse um, (coughs) 13, these witnesses were told, don't testify to what you have seen and heard, but rather tell them his disciples came through the night, stole away while we were asleep. If that report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money as they did and they were instructed and that story has been widely circulated. There's one mission preached among the Jews, this mission of lying about Jesus' resurrection. And then by contrast to that, the true testimony, go into all the world and preach to the end of the age that Jesus is risen and Lord. Let's now jump into the the Great Commission itself. It's structured by four alls. It's a little hard to see in almost every English translation. They're not all translated all because they're good English sentences rather than robotic translations straight from Greek. But you can kind of maybe guess at what the four are. So some of them are alls. So let's let's do those first of all. What's the the alls here? It's four alls in verses uh, 18 to 20. Yep, all authority has been given to Jesus. That all nations. Yep. So those ones are very clear. Then there's two other that are alls, but they're hidden by the good English. Can you guess what they might be? There's all that I've commanded. Yeah. Okay. So there is an all there. Yeah. So it's the all that I've commanded you. In some translations, in others they have. We have everything there. Yep. Everything or all I've commanded. So all authority. All nations, all things, yeah, all, all commands. And the other one is um, all days. So I'm with you all days until the end of the age. Four alls. And that's how we'll work our way through this great commission as we think <coughs> about this, this mission that is central to God's people and God's purposes and happens to also be this niche focus for the Uni Fellowship. First then, all authority. Now Jesus, I, I know you know, is God the Son. He is divine, and so he's worthy of all worship and worthy of all honour. He's uncreated and, and, um, and not dependent on anything. He's worthy of all worship. He has all authority. He had all authority. He didn't need anyone to give it to him. But this is now God the Son as the incarnate Son of Man, as, the, um, as God become a human, born of Mary, lived, baptised, tempted, uh, performed his miracles, suffered, betrayed, was hungry and thirsted, Uh, died, buried, rose now as God the Son become a man, risen, successful in his saving work. He is not just the divine Son of God who came into the world like a sort of an angel skating over the top of the world, but he is the incarnate Son of God who truly is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God as well. And as that Son of God, he also has all authority. So back in Matthew 4, back in Matthew 4, uh, uh, rather, so Matthew 3, the end of Matthew 3, Jesus is baptised, and we see this. We see the God-man now beginning his ministry, being declared to be now the Son of God in his earthly ministry. As soon as, soon as Jesus was baptised, Matthew three sixteen, he went out of the water, and at that, that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus in his earthly ministry, his human baptism, um, is declared now to be the Spirit-anointed Son of God, the Saviour, Messiah. Or chapter 17, we see that declaration again, at the tr- transfiguration. Chapter 17. 
After six days, Matthew 17, Jesus took him with Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and they led him up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Down to verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is now the son of God, the Messiah, the prophet, like Moses and Elijah, but greater still, he's the one you listen to. When you're in the presence of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses, and the greatest prophet of the prophesying kingdom age, Elijah, and Jesus, everyone shuts up and listens to what Jesus has to say. Listen to him. He's the prophet. He's the king. He's the saviour. He's God, the son, become the son of man, the son of God, the Messiah, the prophet. And now in Matthew 28, he's completed all that he came to do, preaching, healing, uh, living the godly life through temptation and trial, dying the sacrificial death for the sins of the world, the covenant that would cover over the sins, and rising again now to new life. And so in that sense, he's saying now, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's like his resurrection is also his like coronation, in a way, declared from very birth to be God with us, uh, baptised to be the Son of God, who would do God's work at his baptism, revealed to be the Son of God in the, his transfiguration, a little window and a glimpse into how glorious this God-man is. And now his work is completed and he's crowned now all authority in heaven and earth. Not just ruling the world as God, but now also to rule the world as God's saviour and judge. Crowned in his resurrection to be God's saviour and judge. You see this kind of idea, for example, in Romans 1. Romans 1 uh, begins talking about the gospel in these kinds of terms. Very start of Romans. Paul says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. There you go. God the Son, become a human in the line of David, and then crowned, declared, made the son of God in power, saviour and judge, through his resurrection of the dead. Philippians 2, same kind of thing. <coughs> Philippians 2. Your attitude should be like Jesus Christ, Philippians 2 verse 5 says, who was in very nature God, God the Son, truly divine, but didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority. Throughout even the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about how he'll have authority to judge. He stands like the one who gathers all the nations, separates the sheep and goats, some to eternal life, some to eternal judgment and fire. He speaks about judging the 12 tribes of Israel and so on and so forth. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. Yeah? Great, mighty, the one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man who judged the world. Put things right by bringing justice. 
deal with death and the devil. The strong man is the analogy he talks about, like the devil, like its mighty one who has bound the world in sin and judgment. And Jesus can bind up the, the strong man and, and disarm the devil, cast out Satan by the power of God and so bring rescue. So he's, he's, the, he's the mighty judge and he also has that authority to save throughout, again, Matthew's Gospel. At the very beginning, he's called Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Do you know what does the name Jesus mean? Yeah, Ellie? Save his people from his sins. Yeah, that's right. He called Jesus for him. Save his people from his sins. That is, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Yep. Saviour. God saves. Joshua, Jesus, God saves. Yeah. Um, uh, he is the one who has authority to forgive sins. Remember the story where the guy comes to be healed and he can't move? He's, these great mates of his bring him to Jesus. And here he is, clearly in need of physical healing. And Jesus says, you are forgiven. It causes a scandal. Who, how can this blasphemy? Who can forgive but God alone? But God has given this man authority to forgive sins. For he is the God man, has all authority to judge and to save, even to forgive sins. The one who now has authority to save. Let's have a look at that Matthew um, 16 one we've alluded to, the, the declaration of Jesus as the Christ. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, oh, there's different, different theories about who you are. And Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 16, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is Matthew 16, verse 17 now. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom in heaven. Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Saviour. And this confession and those who share in the preaching of this message will build a church that will conquer hell itself. That will loose people from their sins. Bind others over to judgment. So central now to God's ruling of the whole world and our eternal destinies is Jesus. All authority of all things, including judgment and salvation. God's remedy for a broken, wicked, guilty world to bring justice and to bring mercy. Worthy of worship, worthy of full trust and confidence, worthy of all glory and worship, obedience and thanksgiving. Jesus, God the Son, become God's King, Saviour and Judge. Back to Matthew 28, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. Now, if Jesus has all authority as God's Saviour and Judge, as God the Son, if that is true, if he has all authority, then it's true that his message and his rule is relevant to all the earth. And that's our second, all, all nations. All authority, secondly, all nations. One of the other passages that uh, lies behind um, Matthew 28 um, is uh, in the prophecy of Daniel, this weird, peculiar prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Um, and Daniel says in Daniel 7 verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, Daniel 7 13, There before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given... Authority, glory, sovereign power, 
all people and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here he is. He is the son of man. Now given by God all authority over all nations that all might worship him. It's a big deal. Now as we read Matthew 28, all nations, as thoroughly Christian people in several millennia of uh, the year of our Lord, of Christian era, um, we think all nations and we think just all nations because that's the Christian way to think. We go, yeah, all the nations of the world need to go to them because they all need to be gone to because Jesus has all authority over them. We just think in a flat global way. Um, in fact, at a conference that uh, the staff of, of us were involved in, that was very much the way it was spoken about is why don't you go to the nations? And we might speak about that here. CMS might say, have you considered going to the nations, being missionaries to the world, to the nations that are out there somewhere, Right. You're in Australia, and then there are the nations. Will you go to the nations? But we need to get our heads back into this time. Part of reading the Bible is, is asking, how was God speaking to the first audience he spoke with? And as we understand that, we better understand how he's speaking still today to us, right? And to this first audience, we've got to remember, this is in Galilee, which used to be Zebulun and Naphtali. This is in, um, he, he was crucified in Jerusalem. He was not only the son of man, the son of God, but also the king of the Jews. God's promises had been carried by who? The Jews. God had spoken to them, made covenant promises to them, given the law to them and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice to them. And so all nations in that context is, it's a blowing apart of, of the old covenant reaching its fulfilment and so outgrowing like the wineskins that Christine mentioned Jonah being really frustrated and angry about this he was willing perhaps finally to go and be a prophet of judgment to the nations but what he dreaded was that he might end up becoming a prophet of mercy to the nations yeah um, and so throughout Jesus ministry uh, he brings healing to the centurion's daughter and then he says I tell you what you know, um, this is in Matthew 8, Matthew chapter 8. He says, um, uh, I tell you, Matthew 8 verse 10, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith as this Roman centurion. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown outside in darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of this through Jesus' teaching where he says, hey, you know what? It might be that actually the centurion with great faith or, you know, that woman who says, oh, Jesus, uh, provide healing. And he says, well, it's, I'm here for Israel at this stage. It's, I'm not, it's not right for me to, to... It's quite a demeaning kind of image he uses to take the kids' food and feed the dogs. And she wears it and she goes, yeah, I'm not a Jew. But the dogs still get to eat the crumbs, which I wonder if it made Jesus smile. And he said, well, yeah, true, very true. And now these crumbs are spreading far and wide. There's, there's all through, there's these little stories of the gospel going, and even sometimes Jesus saying, you know what? Um, uh, the queen of Sheba will judge this generation because she wasn't from Israel, and yet she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now one greater than Solomon is here, and you Jews aren't listening to me. Yeah? Woe to you, um, Chorazin, and woe to you, uh, Bethsaida, and these places I'm preaching, because I tell you what, um, other people who receive judgment will rise up and judge you. Because now salvation has come and you're not receiving it when you've had so many more chances 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, Jesus said, and caused great offence. This thread through Jesus' ministry is, yes, I'm ministering to the Jews now, but as they reject my message, the message will be open far and wide to all the peoples of the world, to all the nations, to the Gentiles. You see it in the start of Acts where Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, and then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the world. All nations means all nations other than Israel, in other words. Don't just read it in a flat way to go, it means just any nation you can think of. In the first place, it means the nations outside of where we are right now, Israel. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples of the ends of the earth, of the Gentiles, of the far islands, as Zechariah speaks of. Go far away and bring the fulfilment of Israel's calling. For now Israel, Israel's saviour and king has come, the last days begin, and so this light should shine out from Israel to the ends of the earth. Here the vocation of Israel is fulfilled. Now, I don't know, a mix of you here, some of you may not have encountered the kind of like um, uh, critical reflection about colonialism and imperialism and missionary work. Some of you might be really familiar with those kinds of criticisms. It's important to be familiar with them. I guess here in Australia, we hear quite a lot about destructive ways in which often very well-meaning missionaries even served things such as the, the, the appalling idea of the stolen generations and other things like this. We know these stories locally. People have stories like that to tell all around the world. Um, that when Christianity spread, at many times it spread hand in hand or before in some cases, which is often better, like in many of the islands around Australia. Sadly, in other places like Australia, after empire came. And, uh, and so that has created a complicated legacy for missionary work. It means that so often missionaries couldn't see clearly what was English culture or French culture or Spanish culture or American culture or Australian culture and white Australian culture and what was the gospel. <laughs> couldn't see those things clearly. Um, and, and couldn't see the ways in which they were enabling and, and benefiting from forms of power and, and economic and, and military abuse that was oppressing the people they were trying to serve and, and doing, therefore doing it in a way that as the gospel came, culture was being evaporated and, and robbed at the same time. It's a mixed legacy. All the way along there were characters who saw something of the problem, fought hard for translation, for example. Um, to make sure that there was Bible translation. Like, like William Carey worked really hard at Bible translations in India, for example. And there were characters here in Australia. Uh, one of the most fabulous names is a guy called Threlkeld. What a great name. Who spoke up very boldly at, at times about the abuses of Aboriginal peoples here. Um, so, so there's always been a mixed legacy. And, and it's interesting in the sense that over time, even where there was a complicated process, there were still many good things that came the nations of the world and still many local people speak with great thankfulness of God's grace to them um, even through the mix of that but what we need to realize is no the gospel is not American it's not English it's not white it's not even Jewish it's God's gospel and it's for all the people in the world and so while we must be careful to learn the lessons of the failures of colonialism and missionary work and imperialism and missionary work and kind of more modern American white missionary work that just brings more through its assumptions and ideas and money 
a kind of oppression. We need to learn the lessons of that. We mustn't overcorrect, as some advocate, and say, you must never go to another country and advocate that they believe your religion ever. You must never do that. You can't go there. This passage won't let us go there. Our beliefs about Jesus and his work won't let us go there. For we have to say that if God is the creator of all the earth and if Jesus is the saviour and judge of all the earth and the gospel is a message for all the earth, then it's an act of love and an act of actual, if done well, a kind of respect that says you as a fellow human being need to hear the things I've learned and found. I want to share them with you. (coughs) And you are not... I mustn't treat you as so um, uh, blocked off and, um, and isolated, that you, you and your brain and your life and your culture and your community cannot cope with outside influence. No, no, no. As we come to fellow image bearers with the glorious message of God that doesn't belong to our culture, it belongs to God, then we're sharing with them a message of, a message of God's love. It's an act of love to share it with them. Yeah? And we're sharing it with them as an expression of respect and dignity that they are able to hear it and weigh it for themselves. We're sharing as a matter of necessity. For all people sit under the, uh, are under sin, under the power of the devil, under, anticipating the judgment of God. And so we come to bring a message of forgiveness and rescue and reconciliation, peace with God. So here we are. We're in one of the nations, of course. We're Europeans, many of us. Others from other parts of the world, Asia and so forth. Here, now we find ourselves in Australia. Via Europe or Asia, we've come to this great southern land. We're in the nations already. So it's silly to say you should go to the nations. You can say, done, what next? I'm already here. You're in the nations. You're not in Israel. You're in the nations. Are you going to go to the nations? Already am. (laughs) Jesus is Lord here. We need to make disciples here. Wherever you are, that the go there, go and make disciples of all nations, is a... Go and make disciples. It's that kind of thing. It's like, um, it's all together. Wherever you're going, as you go, when you go, where you go, make disciples. So here we are, make disciples. Um, Jesus is Lord here. Am I? Here, in the nations? Am I making disciples? Do I share this commitment? Do I give, pray, serve towards this end of the preaching of the gospel here in the nations in Australia? Do I invite, share, speak? Do I think, how can I contribute, little old me, to the making of disciples of all nations in this nation? Here we are, a mission to the university, here in this nation, here in a university in this nation, seeking to make disciples. Unambiguously, this is a task that it is good and right for obedient Christians to be involved in, isn't it? Are you involved in it? It's godly, holy, obedient, spiritual, pious, faithful to be concerned with making disciples. Yeah? It's part of the Christian duty, Christian being, Christian existence to share, even if it's just in prayer and giving, in this interest. Yes, we ought to be interested in advocacy and justice for those vulnerable, ethnic minorities, the unborn, um, refugees, uh, future climate refugees, uh, those in oppression, uh, uh, the elderly. 
Yes, we should care and ad for advocacy and justice. Yes, we should seek to, seek to feed and to educate and empower. Yeah, these are all good things. We should seek to glorify God as we cultivate his world from agriculture through to art and poetry and song. But as Christians of this final age of history, as the church and as God's people sharing in God's peculiar saving purposes, the making of the disciples through the preaching of the gospel is a great task that we've been entrusted with. Because Jesus is judge and saviour. And as we're in the nations, what happens as the gospel goes to all the nations is those nations start to think where else the gospel could go. So as the gospel goes out from here to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, here we are at the ends of the earth, and we go, there's another part of the ends of the earth. Maybe the gospel should go over here. And then we look back possibly to Samaria, and we go, actually, they could do with some stuff over here, so let's go back here. And then we suddenly... Re and you get this interplay going on, as we see in our world today, where Christians sharing in this conviction and this calling go out to all the nations and then bounce all around the place. Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, Jamaria, ends of the earth, side of the earth, in the in-between, not quite near the end, but near the middle, and on and on we go, all sharing together. And in fact, that's one of the lessons learned from imperialism and colonialism. For a very long time, the idiotic fact was groups like CMS would start CMS, send missionaries to other places, and then continue to direct it from the, national, the, 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 the original sending office. And they'd even start churches in local areas and they'd send people to lead the churches. But at their best, they started to then train up local leaders. At a pinch, they might train up local bishops, but be careful there. Um, but the funny thing is it took a long time for them to go, you know what would really lead to a mature Christian movement in, in Africa and India and Asia and Australia? Not only local churches, not only local leaders, but local CMSs. <laughs> So that then Africa and Asia and Australia and uh, the far-flung parts of Europe also become missionary sending centres themselves. Yeah? And so as you share this concern in disciple-making, I wonder if you might also share a concern in wondering what other nations you might make disciples in, what other mischief, disciple-making mischief you might get up to. You might take a look even here at UTAS and think about our partner ministries with subbies and Focus and say, you know what, I love Uni Fellowship, I'll come and visit you sometimes, but I've got a date with Focus. I've got to go and help them reach the Chinese students who are here at UTAS. Or subbies with the various students around India and other Indian subcontinent countries, Bangladesh and Nepal, who have come to our shores. And possibly even go, maybe my life, my degree, my training, my health, my privileges could be leveraged to share in gospel preaching, theological colleges, Bible translation, and so on and so forth, in Slovenia, in to resource ministry to the Bedouin tribes, to the secular countries like France and, and others in Western Europe, to the United States, to rural Australia. Where might I go? How might I serve? Some of us, even in this room, some of us, weird enough thought, might be doing it full time. Of course, it seems like the pastor at your church has been at your church forever, right? Like, how long have they been there? I don't know, forever. Yeah. Um, and they'll probably be there forever too, right? They're just, just forever. They'll just be, just be there. Um, but when it happens, when a pastor dies or retires or moves on somewhere else, suddenly you're a church without a pastor. 
Oh my goodness, what do we do now? Got no pastor. You know, or it seems like, I mean, I feel like I've been here forever with Uni Fellowship and I'll be here forever, I guess. I don't know. I'm still using like a profile photo from like 10 years ago and that's a bit lying now. <laughs> At some point that becomes a break of the ninth commandment. But, um, <laughs> um, uh, but sooner or later, even those who are working on staff here, I mean, much quicker those who are on our student exec are gone. And then we need new student executive leaders. Then we need new staff. In order to have the next pastor, the next missionary, the next campus leaders, the next youth leaders, the next deacons, the next elders, you need to start preparing now. Especially for those full-time roles, the preparation path is quite a long one. As we need future Bible translators, missionaries, evangelists, church planners, youth group leaders, deacons, elders, we need people even as teensy-tightsy nobodies like you guys might feel you are. Sooner or later, you'll be all we have left. (laughs) So some of you will have to step up and serve. And so as you mature now and obedient now and grow in skills and conviction and character now, you're not only worshipping God, but you need to be thinking, how might I serve him if Jesus doesn't return? Missionaries to the world. Who's going to do it? Might be you. Might be someone you know who you reckon is gifted. It might seem obvious to you that they're gifted. It might not be obvious to them. It's a little bit like with people when they have a crush on each other. Everyone else knows they're dating before they do sometimes. Like everyone else can tell. So obvious. But they're still going, I don't know, does she like me? Does he like me? I'm not sure if he does or not. And everyone's just so bored with it. Just going, come on, guys. You know, just ask each other out already. It can be a bit the same sometimes with those with gifts in ministry. Some of our church cultures are very humble and meek. We dare not boost people's egos, especially in Australian culture, where we, you know, we take pride in knocking down other people's pride. But if you know someone, if there's a, if there's a, there's a girl you know in church or uni fellowship that you think is gifted, or there's a guy you know in uni fellowship that you think is gifted, maybe take the time to tell what you discern in them in terms of gifts. Lift them up, because it might not be obvious to them. All authority, all nations, teaching them all things. Baptising in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus says there in verse 19, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Verse 20, all things, all I've commanded you. Yeah. They're taught all things to share in the blessings of God and join the people of God, obey the way of God, be equipped. Evangelism is not just a getting a decision. Someone comes up front and gets prayed for. Boom, done, job done not just someone making that first decision but evangelism is the beginning of disciple making a beginning of a lifetime now that goes on into eternity it's the beginning of eternal life growing and deepening in our love of God and our adoration for him and our knowledge of him and his ways and his character his purposes thinking his thoughts after him as we go deep into his word and obeying him more fully by the power of his spirit all things Now that means difficult doctrines. We saw in 1 Peter, election according to foreknowledge. Election, foreknowledge, predestination, eek! But yes, the scriptures speak of those things. I've got to dig into them. All things I've commanded you. It includes uh, such things as those people who plunge themselves into floods of dissipation, but they will have to give an account. The one who will judge the living and the dead. Judgment. Hell. All things. It includes difficult ethics too, doesn't it? We saw that tricky passage in 1 Peter 3 about wives and husbands. 
or in our culture today to speak about marriage as God's good gift for uh, the two sexes, male and female, and to only be enjoyed between those two complementary sexes in the exclusive commitment of marriage open to children, that that exclusive place for good sexuality is increasingly seen not just as strange but as wrong in our world that sees social gender trumping sex and then sex as being just about consent regardless of who's involved. That's pretty radical. Our concern for caring for those vulnerable people not yet born or towards the end of their lives can be seen as very unpopular views. But Jesus isn't just saying, go into all the world and make disciples and talk about predestination and marriage and abortion and um, uh, <laughs> the wrath of God. He's not just talking about that. He's going, go deep into the word. God's precious self-revelation. All mine, its riches. You know, there are some churches and ministries, maybe you're a part of one and you need to t- start asking questions where, you, where it's just so thin. It's like a thin soup. It's like a weak cordial, not just the cordial get afterwards, but the whole ministry is just gospel thin, Bible thin. It's just enough to be Christian, but never enough to really satisfy. It's like maybe kind of eating junk food where you get sort of like a, a MSG sugar high and then you're hungry again afterwards. You know, it, there's not much in it. Go for all things. Go deep into God's word. Don't be satisfied with Christianity thin. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't get involved with a group like Uni Fellowship, and and we need to recognise that there's a whole bunch of reasons why people might not. But a somewhat odd reason can be when somebody says, you know what, I'm kind of good. Got a bit of church, got a bit of Bible study, got a bit of Bible, I'm set. And if that betrays a lack of desire to go deep into God's word, a kind of all you sort of need is the basics, right? How hard can it be? Like I kind of I believe in Jesus and you, you know, you don't steal, don't murder. That's, that's kind of more set. If, if there's a flippancy about not wanting to go deep in God's word, then that's a pity. Yeah? If I go, oh, I'm good. I'm happy just to go light on God's great self-revelation. I'm kind of... I've never really read all God's word or gone deep in it. I've never really wrestled long and hard with, with key doctrines of scripture. I've never really figured out the storyline of scripture and delved into some of its stranger parts. Uh, but that's fine. You don't really have to, do you? You don't have to, technically, to be a Christian. So cool, I'll take that then. <laughs> I'll take the cheap plan. Thanks. Um, there, there's a sense in which we can settle for too little. We want to encourage you guys, brothers and sisters, to be serious about God. Serious about God's word. Zealous for God. To treasure the word of God. To submit and be obedient to the word of God. To be shaped and moulded by the word of God. To be confident in the word of God. I'd love you to make that your ambition too. All authority. Make disciples of all nations. Baptising and teaching them all things. And finally... I'm with you all days to the end of the age. We're not alone. God the Father, through Jesus' saving, ruling, mediating work, and by the Holy Spirit dwelling among us and going before us, continues his work. We are fellow workers with him in this age. Jesus' ministry continues 
through us, indwelt by the Spirit as he rules and mediates from heaven. And what a relief that is. Because we're so fragile and finite, fearful often, and fallible, as we talked about, like with that colonialism and stuff. We have our own mistakes in our own age. And yes, in this age, we remain sinful, selfish and shaped by systems of the world, the flesh, the devil. Those things still blow us about. We have to wrestle not to be conformed to them because we just swim in them all the time. But God is with us. Jesus is with us by his spirit. He hasn't left us alone. He's still here with us. And so as we fumble forward seeking to serve him and speak for him and, and make some kind of difference, fearful, you know, I hope we are a bit fearful going, oh gosh, I could mess this up or I couldn't see how to see it through or I could do it all wrong or I could, my motives could get all muddied up. The institutions we build could just go corrupt. Or... If you trust in a human institution, the Presbyterian Church, the Anglican Church, or Uni Fellowship of Christians, or if you trust in a human leader, your pastor, or me, or some celebrity preacher that you um, watch on YouTube, um, then that is a recipe for disillusionment, sooner or later. Or corruption, as you bend over backwards to try and preserve the reputation of your institution or your leader when it's obvious it needs to be confronted. If you put your trust in a human institution or a leader, that's a recipe for disillusion and corruption. Trust in Christ. Remember what we read in Matthew 16? On this rock I'll build my church on a confession of the Christ, on those who confess the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, that he is the one who dies for the sins of the world. He is the one that binds and looses. And the glorious miracle is that God is powerful in our weakness. God can triumph even through our failure to continue to build his church. And the gates of hell won't overcome it. There's a comfort in that. And there's a confidence in that. For this whole age. For this is the age of salvation now. This is the age of gospel preaching now. And this age will one day come to an end. Now is the day of salvation. <coughs> now is the day of amnesty offered. But one day that day will end. Jesus will return. The Son of Man coming. In justice, in judgment with the angels. To divide the sheep and the goats. Those who've come to hear and trust and follow him to eternal life. Those who have abandoned him or never heard or never trusted to eternal judgment. It's a very simple passage, isn't it really? Clear, clear command, a clear commission. Our job, make disciples, preach the gospel, make believers, mature them, send them out. Make disciples, preach the gospel, mature, send them out. Christians are, along with all that we ought to do, all that God's counsel speaks of in terms of godliness and love and justice and so on and so forth, are also great commission people. Now, you don't have to do it as a uni student with uni fellowship. don't have to. There's no rule or law. It doesn't say here, go and make disciples of all nations. And if you're enrolled at a university in the University of Tasmania or equivalent universities, then join uni fellowship or equivalent groups. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. <laughs> Where you do it <laughs> is, a, is one different thing. But if you're a Great Commission Christian and you're a university student and you come across a group like this that shares this concern, not getting involved should at least be a seriously considered no. It might be a no, that's fine. 
but it should be a seriously considered no. It's like, oh, that's what Christians are about. Yeah, that's what I'm about. I, for these reasons, I can't, but bless ya. You know, it, it, it's, it should be the kind of thing we go, this is, a, this is something that matters. This is something we care about. I mean, I know your pastors feel the same when they get emailed by infinite Christian organisations. They go, oh, look, I can't say yes to all of them because I'm finite. But saying no to those that are interested in the Great Commission is a hard, tricky no. It's, a, it's like, oh, I want to. We should be interested in being amongst people and being uh, engaged in work that is uh, related to the Great Commission. So easy for our vision as Christians to shrink, to become saved and otherwise sort of passive. Still saved, but barely fruitful. To be a Christian and to be godly. Well, actually, now you come to think of it, maybe not quite as actually godly in a bunch of areas that are a bit tricky to be godly in. Oh, but go to church. Well, you're actually on that one. Sometimes not when it's just a slightly inconvenient to go to church. And, uh, and actually, I'm not sure if I've been for the last month or so, actually. Um, and to be sort of Christian-ish and godly-ish and, and involved-ish, but a lot of ish, ishtianity. But what would it mean if this great commission that the Lord Jesus has given to his people for this age shaped my life, shaped your life? What if it shaped my goals and my habits? My hopes and my plans? You know, it might even shape the things I listen to and read and think about to deepen me in these concerns. Or how I listen to things and read them might shape my financial plans, my time priorities, my prayers. It could change the church you go to, the ministries you engage with, what you're passionate about and interested in. It might shape what company you keep. Friends and mentors who together help you work towards worshipping Jesus and obeying Jesus and serving his purposes rather than friends and mentors who, who take all that you get at church and then slowly dilute it. Yeah? Do I care about Jesus' glory and the salvation of the nations? What would happen if we here in this room even really took this stuff seriously by God's grace? What would happen? Took God seriously, took sin seriously, feared the wrath of God, thrilled at the thought of the new creation, that glorious hope to dawn when Jesus returns, ached at the longing that the nations might be saved, mourned and wept for those still in darkness. What would happen if we really deepened in this stuff, really gave ourselves to it? What would that mean for our lives, our families, our friends, our churches, for the University of Tasmania? Imagine it. We can't force God's hands on all the results. He may have a day of small things prepared for us. But the good thing is, you know what, if we were really on fire for God and it didn't amount to much in God's wisdom, we'd still be doing the right thing, the obedient thing, the glorious thing. There's no regrets in serving the Lord Jesus and his purposes. Certainly we as staff and the student leaders will continue, those of others who are interested in you know, pastors, our youth leaders, we'll continue plodding on 
by God's grace, you know, whether things are pretty steady or whatever, as long as there's a useful ministry to do, we'll keep plodding on. But all the time we're praying, and won't you pray with us, that a huge, big tin of gospel gasoline would be poured all over us and we'd be set on Holy Ghost fire, that there'd be a revival of zeal and passion and earnestness and seriousness that, that would, would run through our hearts and through our relationships and through our churches. It'd be amazing. It'd be exciting to be a part of. But more than that, what good it might do for the world and the glory of God. Let's pray. Our loving Father, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, our Holy Spirit, you created us, you saved us, you rule and reign, you're working in us and through us and in the world for salvation and judgement. Use us. Lead us to put to death the old self, put on the new. To submit to Jesus, worship him, obey him, speak for him. Make us godly in our lives, make us useful in our lifetimes. Forgive us when we continue in the ways that led to death. Forgive us when we care more for small things than the great things you give us. Work by your spirit to revive us, refresh us, and lead us. Obedience to you and service of your purposes we beg. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.